Orlando soccer team had the opportunity to win their first playoff game in their entire franchise history. Um, but the game had gone to overtime. If you know soccer, you know uh, in overtime for playoffs, at least, once overtime, uh, the time for overtime has expired, it goes to penalty kicks. Um, and based off something of a technicality where the goalkeeper came off his line too early, the goalkeeper received an infraction, which was his second warning, which means he actually gets kicked out of the game. He, get, he got a red card. And the rules in soccer is once the penalty kicks have ensued, you are no longer allowed to make any subs. You can only play the rest of the penalty, uh, the penalty shootout with your active players, which means they no longer had a goalie. So they had to put in one of their field players, a guy who doesn't normally play goal, goal, a goalie as a goalkeeper, and he had to play goalkeeper for the rest of that shootout. That was Orlando against um, New York, one of New York's football clubs or soccer clubs. Um, and I'm not going to tell you how the rest of that game ended. You can look it up for yourself if you're interested. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've been, for example, on a work project where there's sort of this uh, coworker of yours who's central to that project and they end up leaving the company in the middle of the project and the rest of you and your coworkers are kind of scrambling. Like they, they were the one who, who was carrying all of this. We have a similar situation in the book of Judges where we, we are in the Judges cycle and the Israelites continue, as uh, Shar just read, they continue to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord after one judge dies. And you might think to yourself, well, okay, so the people of Israel are, are, are a lost cause, they're, they're no good, but at least we have these solid judges to rescue them. At least, you know, we've had Othniel and we have, we've had Ehud, and they seem to be really solid. So we have kind of this track record where things seem to be going okay, at least in that respect. We have the goalkeeper, we have the coworker. But now we get to Barak and the cycle starts to deteriorate. We see Barak, who is uh, a judge who doesn't seem terribly willing to take up the cause of his judgeship and bring about deliverance for Israel. A, a woman, which would connote shame, Deborah, has to prod him into his duties. So it starts to raise a question for us at this point in the book. Well, how is God going to save his people, the God who does not forget his covenant with his people, how is he going to save them when even their judges aren't willing to do that work? So this morning, what we'll do is we will go through and tell that story. We will see that story through the rest of chapter 4, and then we're going to return to that question with an answer. As Shar has already read for us those first three verses, we see the people again rebel and find themselves in oppression. And it's notable that it's, it's called cruel oppression in this passage. That, he, that this, uh, this, this King Jabin oppressed them cruelly for 20 years. And his oppression is dominant and formidable. He has 900 ironclad chariots. Some people have said that chariots in those days would have been kind of the equivalent of tanks today. You know, it's tanks versus infantry. Good luck. Or even as Drew was just talking about praying with the situation in Ukraine, it's, if you know anything about the situation, you have, Ukraine has a, a less than 200,000 people in their active uh, army, whereas uh, Russia has essentially the size of the Milwaukee metropolitan area, a little over a million. 
or the budget. You look at the budget in Ukraine as about, it's a little bit less than five billion for their military, whereas Russia has over 45 billion spending for their military. This is a David and Goliath sort of situation. And similar here with the chariots against Israel. If we go over and we kind of take a sneak peek even into chapter 5, verse 8, this psalm, this song that, that Deborah sings after this passage, she talks about how there was, there was, was, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel. Like they didn't even have weapons. Probably Jabin sort of found a way to outlaw the creation of weapons, which is maybe why Shamgar even, you know, has to use an ox code as his weapon of choice in 331. And so we move now to verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. What's interesting is that they come up to her for judgment. The people of Israel come up to her for judgment. And, in, and as we know in the book, judging is, this, is, this, is a, it's the language of these folks who are called to deliver God's people. They were to issue judgment on behalf of God's people. So it's very likely that what's meant here is coming up for her for judgment is that they're coming to this prophetess to say, give us judgment over our, 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 our oppressors. Give us, what, are we, what does God say in terms of providing us deliverance in this moment? And they have to come to Deborah, which would strike us as odd because if we know the geography, which I'm not assuming that most of us do, um, since we're not Israelites living in this area. But what we can learn from it is that Jabin, he reigned up in the north, as we saw in Hazor. And Barak was also up in Jabin's neck of the woods, as it says in verse 6, he's in Kadesh Naphtali. So he's actually in Jabin's territory. But Bethel and Ramah, those are far down south near Judah. And so the people have to come all the way down south to ask Deborah to issue deliverance for them. Which makes us think, like, where is Barak? Why can't they go to him? Who should be taking the lead in bringing judgment and deliverance? We see this in verse 6 when Deborah asks Barak, like, has not God said this to you? It assumes that Barak should know he's supposed to be taking an army. It's his job as the judge to lead in deliverance. And so, and so things are already, they're not looking so great for our judge, Barak, in this moment. He's neglectful of his duties. And so we see Barak's response in verse 8 where he says, well, listen, he said to Deborah, if you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. You go, I go. And so he only, he's only going to go if Deborah agrees to accompany him. And what's ironic about this is, is he wants Deborah 
to go with him, but Deborah has already told him that Yahweh goes with him. You already have Yahweh to go with you. Yahweh says, I'm going to give him into your hand. And yet, even in this moment, he's asking, but, but Deborah, will you go with me? In verse 9, Deborah says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for Yahweh will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So in response to Barak's hesitancy, Deborah prophesies, as a prophet, she prophesies that God will give the battle uh, into the hand of a woman. The glory will go to a woman and not himself. And there's this word play here. You'll notice there's kind of this language of go, go, go throughout verses 8 and 9 and even into... um, yeah, into the end of verse 9 there. that He says, if you go with me, I will go. And Deborah says, yeah, I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going is not going to lead to your glory. So as I go with you and you go, you're not going to get glory. And we should know, you know, in our, in our context today, um, sort of post-feminism, we would not necessarily, we, we want to stress sort of the equality of people and the equality of, of, of everyone of different genders, it may not immediately strike us what's sort of involved here culturally. That for a woman, to, for God to hand over Sisera to a woman would imply great shame to Barak. So look over at chapter 9, verse 52 and 54. This is a, another account within the book where Abimelech, uh, Gideon's son, this is the, the account of his death, And Abimelech came to a tower, and he fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, notice this, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman has killed me. And his his young man thrust him through, and he died." And so to be killed by a woman would be, would have been, notice, it's of great shame. And, and so that's the case of being killed by a woman. Um, it would also be true to have the glory stolen by a woman, to have uh, Sisera or the army somehow, we don't know yet, but somehow the glory will be given to a woman instead of Barak. And at this point, who's the prominent woman in the story that we expect the glory to go to? It would be Deborah. All right, so we see now as we continue in verse uh, 9, and she said to him, I will, or sorry, uh, continuing in verse 9, then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So she goes with him, verse 10, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and then this line at the end, just so we don't miss it, and Deborah went up with him. He's got this whole army, and oh oh, yeah, and and Deborah went with him because he really needs that. And we continue in verse 11. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'anaam, which is near Kadesh. We're kind of wondering, what's this verse all about here? What's this doing here? Well, the Kenites were the descendants of Moses' brother-in-law who had come with Israel um, as they were going through the wilderness. And they ended up settling in the territory of Judah with Israel. And so uh, they're not up north. Most of them are down south in Judah. 
But this guy, Heber, he separates from the rest of his clan and he's up north. He's kind of in the territory, but we're not really told like, okay, so what does that have to do with the story so far? Um, I, I grew up watching Seinfeld, so I'm dating myself a little bit here. As a 90s kid, um, I, watched, I loved watching Seinfeld on, on Fox 11 in the Green Bay Channel. And it was, they would show two episodes every night. And one of the things that I love about Seinfeld is the creative way that all those different storylines, there's normally like two or three storylines, they oftentimes have a way of sort of uh, humorously converging right at the end of an episode. Right, so there's that one uh, where George uh, gets the the golf ball out of the whale when he's like having to pretend to be a marine biologist, and Kramer had been hitting golf balls into the ocean. Okay, Steve knows that one. It looks like anyone else, and it all comes together where he ends up like taking the golf ball out, and then his girlfriend breaks up because he's not a marine biologist. Anyways, yeah, with these episodes, they always kind of converge at the end in creative ways, and it's hilarious. Similarly, we're going to expect this story to do something in the same way. We don't know what this is doing here, but this is something of a foreshadowing. We get this in, in books that we read or movies that we watch, a little bit of a hint of, okay, we don't know what that's all about for now, but I, I suspect it's going to come in later. So we'll just, just kind of set that to the side and we'll, we'll wait and see what happens with that. All right, moving on to verse 12. Now, when Cicero, Cicero was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand. Does not Yahweh go out before you? So when Sisera sees Barak assembling this, these people at Mount Tabor, he sees this as his chance to attack a weaker enemy with his chariots. Like, what are you doing? You want to gather all those people together? Okay, you're sitting ducks now. And he gathers his chariots together. And you notice again that even though Barak has been told that he has the battle, Deborah has to prod him again up. Uh, the same language was used earlier for Deborah arising in verse 9. And now she's telling him, you need to arise up. The Lord has given him into your hand. What are you waiting for? And so we continue now to the battle. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Yahweh routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Harasheth Hegoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. If you've noticed so far in this section, this, uh, the language of, of chariots has been repeated over and over. Like, you kind of like, we get it. You don't need to keep saying it. We get it. He's got 900 chariots. Well, the fact that he keeps, the author here keeps telling us he's got chariots. He's got 900 chariots. He's got 900 iron chariots. It is meant to show us that at this point now, we were, we're kind of built up with, man, this army is powerful. This army is strong. And now there's a lot of irony that he's actually been reduced to running away on foot. So you notice the language in, in verse 15 that it's drawing out, uh, it's making it really obvious to us that, that, that Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. 
And all this is clearly then God's doing. Barak's army is inferior to these chariots, and so humanly speaking, he really has no chance of winning this battle. So how, how, in, how in the world do they win? God is the one who draws out Sisera's army. So if you look at verse 6 and 7 with me, it says, go gather your men. It's literally go draw out your men. And then in verse 7, God says, I will draw out Sisera. So he says, Barak, I'm calling you to draw out your men, and then I will draw out Sisera. So God is the one who's orchestrating the battle here. We saw in verse 15 that it was Yahweh who routes Sisera. And the word rout there is this idea of throwing them into confusion, causing them to, to stir up into a panic. Like why would these, this army of chariots just all of a sudden get confused and be destroyed? Well, God is intervening in verse 15. Yahweh routes Sisera. He throws them into confusion. He throws them into a panic. And it kind of raises the question, like why did Sisera actually abandon his chariot? Wouldn't that be like the perfect getaway vehicle? Something's going on here. Something weird is happening here. Or even the fact that uh, the foot soldiers, Barak's men, it says they're chasing down the chariots. How do people on their feet chase chariots? It doesn't make any sense. Well, many commentators find an explanation in chapter 5, verse 21. So this, this song that Deborah sings afterwards, chapter 5, verse 21, remember they're at the river Kishon by the battle. And in verse uh, 21, it says, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. The idea here is that, that some would say it, it's possible that, that God caused the river at this moment to flood and to actually make their chariots effectively useless. Chariots are a great tool on dry, flat ground, but as soon as things get flooded, they're actually a detriment. They're going to slow you down. And so that may be what's going on here. Regardless, the, the, God is the one attributed with the victory here. This is not ordinary stuff. And so all of this confirms in verse 14 what Deborah told Barak, that Yahweh is the one who gives Sisera into your hand. Yahweh goes out before you. In other words, no thanks to Barak. And now, we continue in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot, as we saw, and she goes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Ha! And now we get our Seinfeld moment. Heber the Kenite. So that's tying back in here. And it, and it says that there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor, the house of of Heber the, and, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So there's peace between Jabin, uh, this, this king, and then so Sisera, his, his general, so to say, and, and there's peace between him and, and Jael's husband. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, don't be afraid. So Sisera turns aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say, no. Say, no one is here. Okay, so, so there's peace between Jabin and Heber. And so uh, this means that this would seem to be a very safe place for him to find refuge as he's running away from the battle, of course. These are his allies. The other thing is, as readers, we're not, gonna, we're, we're not viewing this Heber guy so well, are we? That he was, the, these Kenites, they're... You know, they're, most of them settled near Judah. They would have been friends with Israel. 
and yet this guy has peace with their oppressor? He's basically a traitor, in other words. So when we come across Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, our, our expectations are that, you know, he's finding refuge. This is, this is the traitor's family. We're not really expecting anything good to come from him or his family here. And so Jabin welcomes him in. She lowers his guard. She says, you know, she comes out to him, okay? He doesn't knock on her door. She comes out to him. Come on in here. Come on in here. Turn aside, my Lord. Don't be afraid. When he asks for water, she gives him milk. She covers him, makes him nice and comfortable, and he falls asleep. And then we get the slow motion action. Everything in the narrative has moved pretty quickly. And notice how much it, 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 we, we get the sense of it slowing down by the fact that the details are described much more slowly and in much more detail. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. <laughs> I love that. Every time I read that little line, it's like, no kidding. Uh, that's normally what happens if someone does that to you. Uh, so she kills him. It's the, the unexpected. She's killed not by Barak in battle, which would have been his glory, but she's killed by a, a bystander, a woman, no less. The shame that would have been implied, remember. And someone from a house that we, we kind of thought, this is a traitor. She effectively fulfills Deborah's prophecy that Yahweh, in verse 9, will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And we find out it wasn't Deborah, but it was Jael. And so then we get the, the height of the irony comes in verse 22, where uh, we get sort of this comical scene. And, and behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, so, he's, so, so Sisera's already dead, and Barak's like still chasing him, like, I gotta get this guy, I gotta hunt him down. It's like, you don't have to hunt him down, he's dead. But Barak doesn't know that he's still chasing him, and in jail went out to meet him as well. So she goes out to meet him as well, and she said to him, come, come in, like the same kind of thing that we saw with Sisera. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you the man whom you are seeking. And so Barak is chasing and, and, and he enters and you kind of expect Barak, you know, maybe he's thinking, Jael, watch out, this guy's dangerous, stand behind me. Puts, puts her behind his back and he's got his sword drawn or maybe whatever he's using for his weapon. And what does he find? Rather than needing to protect Jael, he goes into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. It makes me think of... Uh, if you if you ever guys here, if you ever get a pickle jar, and you're trying to open that pickle jar and it's stuck, and say what happens? You hand it to your maybe you hand it to your wife, or there's a lady who says, "Hey, hey, let me try that," and it, boop, I, I loosen that, you know, right? I, I loosened it for you, right? It's because there's this kind of humiliation of like, hey, I couldn't get that pickle jar open, and then this, and then my wife comes by and boop, right there. That's this is the pickle jar situation. He's chasing, he's chasing. And jail, she puts the, uh, the nail in the coffin, so to say, pun intended. And so what do we get in verse 23? So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So this leads to the downfall of Jabin and his oppressive regime. 
And so God's people were delivered, but there's this resounding message throughout the passage. The irony communicates, no thanks to Barak. Now, imagine that we're sitting down with Barak for an interview later on. Imagine someone's sitting down to interview him, and, and you know, it's, it's this person who says, you know, I was, I was Googling you, Barak, and I found uh, uh, there were some reports that say that you defeated Sisera's army. And he goes, well, well, about that. Hey, no need to be honest. I mean, as one of God's appointed judges, I assume that you took the lead in assembling an army to throw off those oppressors. Um... Not, well, not exactly. You see, there was this prophet lady that she kind of had to rebuke me precisely because I wasn't doing that. You mean Deborah? Yeah, yeah, Deborah. Wait, isn't she way down south? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess you could say that people were feeling kind of desperate since I hadn't really done anything. Hmm, okay, I see. I see. That's interesting. Well, well. anyways, once Deborah told you to get together an army, though, you pretty well manhandled Sisera at that point, right? Well, no, our, I mean, our army really didn't stand much of a chance. You see, Sisera had 900 ironclad chariots. Well, how on earth did you manage to defeat him then? You see, that, that, that's what I was trying to tell you earlier. I mean, I guess you could say that I defeated Sisera, but it was really just God. He put them into a panic, and he made their chariots essentially useless. And so Sisera ended up, you know, running away on foot, actually. Oh, okay, well, but, but you probably then, I'm assuming you chased him down, and you at least got to finish him off, right? Well, no, you see, there was this lady. Right, Deborah, right, you mentioned her. No, a different lady. Wait, you were shown up by two women? <laughs> well, if you want to put it that way, I guess. Okay, so there's this other lady. What, what happens with her? How on earth does she manage to kill Sisera? Isn't he like an elite warrior? Wouldn't you have to be battle-tested? Well, she got him to take a nap, and then she killed him while he's sleeping. That's it? Yeah. So, you see, I, like I was saying, it's technically true that I defeated Sisera's army, but I, I really didn't do much. You see, the message that's assumed throughout the passage finally gets stated in explicit terms at the end. Unsurprisingly, we get to 23, and what does it say? So on that day, not Barak subdued, but God subdued. Barak's inability, his unwillingness, is a foil for the fact that God is the one who gets the glory at the end of the day. All of this shows the clear message that salvation belongs to God. And so as Deborah had told him, it's God who go out, goes out before Barak. It's God who gives Sisera into his hands. It's God who draws out Sisera's army in battle. It's God who throws them into a panic. And in the end, it's not Barak who gets the glory over Sisera, but God, through comedy and irony, orchestrates Sisera's defeat through this woman bystander. So what do we learn from this passage? I think it's this. That with God's people's unwillingness in the backdrop, God nonetheless works deliverance for them in unexpected, unlikely, and unconventional ways. Even with God's people's, their, their unwillingness standing right in the backdrop, God nonetheless works for deliverance for them in rather unexpected, unconventional, unlikely ways. I think God wants to tell us through this passage that we ought to be assured that despite the people of God's unwillingness, God still delivers them by whatever means he needs to. Despite 
the people's unwillingness, God nonetheless delivers them by whatever means he needs to. That he works deliverance for his people despite his people. And of course, the deliverance in the book of Judges, as we've noted, is, is meant to anticipate the greater kingdom deliverance that comes in Christ. That the, the oppression here on account of the curses of the covenant are, are, are curses that Christ deals for us. And so the deliverance here is anticipating what Christ will do. And so as we respond to this message, first of all, this message, the message of this passage is an implied rebuke to any of the unwillingness found in the people of God. You know, Barak, he doesn't want to get on board with God's plan of deliverance, even when it means deliverance from his own oppression. Isn't that true of us? That we don't want to get on board with God's plan of redemption, even when it's redemption from the own mire and, 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 and ickiness and, and, and slavery of our own sin. It, it's something that's good that's offered to us, to be freed from Sisera, to be freed from Jabin's army, and we still don't want to do it. And we're more like Barak than we probably want to admit. So we recognize this unwillingness in ourselves. And when we recognize that sort of unwillingness in ourselves, it means that we recognize our utter dependence on God. We are desperate for God. We were talking about this in the sonship class, that even as using the example of parenting, that our kids need to know that we are the biggest sinners who desperately need Jesus. When we understand our own unwillingness, when we're honest with our own hearts, we, we, we don't even, we, God is saving us despite ourselves. He's saving us from our own sin, even though we like our sin. It shows how desperate we, we, desperate we are. As Romans 5 says, that God saves us even while we were his enemies. That while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. That God saves you despite you, even when you weren't looking for it. This also shows us that the glory for salvation goes to God alone. We don't get to brag, lest anyone should boast, as Paul says. We're not saved by our works, we're saved by Christ's works. And the glory goes to God alone, since he is the author of salvation, not us. The story is not going to be written for our glory, so let's stop living like it is. Personal ambition has no place in the kingdom of God. We become lesser and he becomes greater, as John the Baptist said. In addition, in the midst of this mess that we make of things, I think a passage like this teaches us that we can be assured that God's plans are not stopped. That even when Barak is unwilling, God nonetheless saves by whatever means necessary. And so even as we continue as believers to stumble our way through this life, we continue to sin, we, can st we continue to have these moments of unwillingness, we can be assured that God will bring us to the end despite ourselves. He will cause us to persevere. He will preserve us, not because we, somehow we have it within us. He will preserve us despite ourselves, despite the fact that we lack what is needed. And lastly, I think we can have confidence in this God then because we know he always works his plan of redemption, even through unconventional ways. As we think about the mission of the church, we have confidence that God will accomplish that mission because even as Siobhan was saying, it's not first and foremost our mission, it's first and foremost his mission. And because it's his mission, he will not be stopped in carrying it out. He will work his plan of redemption across this globe. And that's a God worth living for. 
You want to waste your life, live for anything other than God. You want to save your life, as Jesus says, you lose it for God. Because that's where life is truly found. That's a God worth living for. That's a God worth serving. Because his plans are sure. Nothing will be wasted and nothing will be thwarted. And this God who works deliverance in unexpected ways, imagine how the, the, the recipients of this book, the original recipients would have heard this. They're kind of around, you know, the time of David. Well, what do we know about David? As a book like this is anticipating, we need a greater judge. We need a greater king. This was a time in which there was no king in the land. And now we hold up David. Well, what is David? In many ways, David is that unexpected king. He's that unexpected deliverance. You remember when Samuel goes to Jesse and, and God says, I'm going to show you the king. Um, Samuel goes through all, all of Jesse's sons and it's no not, oops, sorry, no not this one, no not this one, no not this one. And then and Samuel's like, well, hey, God is saying that it's none of these. Do you have any other sons? Oh yeah, I didn't even think to bring in David. He's out in the field, right? He's the unexpected one and yet he's the one who gets anointed as king. That's in 1 Samuel 16. One chapter later, 1 Samuel 17, what do we do? What do we see? We see David fighting Goliath. As everyone else cowers back just like Barak, the armies of Israel are cowering against Goliath. We get this boy who fights and wins an unexpected victory. And of course, David is only a small glimmer of the way that God will save ultimately in unconventional and unexpected ways through Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes to us, not as we expect, not in the glamorous way, but he is born among animals and he's laid in a manger. He's a mere carpenter's son. Carpenter's son. That would have been like the equivalent of a construction worker. He's a blue-collar dude. He, 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 what does his disciples say when they hear about him? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's from Nazareth. And in the nature of his death, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that it was foolishness. The idea that, a, that the God incarnate would die on a cross, would be killed, that offends our sensibilities. We want a God who's powerful. We want a God who takes charge. We want strong leaders. And we have a God who comes to us and demonstrates that he saves by weakness. He thereby, notice what Paul says, he says that he puts to shame the wise and the strong by dying on the cross. Our, our, our sense of pretense, our sense of having it all together, our sense of this is the way you do it, God puts to shame by saving us through weakness through sacrifice, through death. It's not what we expected. Revelation 5, John sees this, or he hears this vision of, a, of the lion of Judah, the lion, the warrior king. And then what does he see? It's not a lion, it's actually a lamb. The way that Jesus comes and saves and achieves the victory is by being a lamb. It's by sacrificing. And this is the very way that God chose to save us. By actually or God actually humbles himself to the very point of death on a cross, bearing our sin, taking our sin upon himself. Because our sin separates us from God, our sin w would make us objects of God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. And yet God, in his grace and in his love, he sends Christ to bear that sin on our behalf and to die and to take the penalty of death for us. God saves us not through the way that we would have thought, through maybe our own efforts or a sort of us kind of mustering up our own strength. Look at the, the ways that every other religion in this world, uh, it, the forms that it takes, where it's always what we do to sort of climb our way up to God. 
And yet in the gospel of Christianity, it's God coming down to us and dying on a cross. And we get a seal of this very promise of salvation in the Lord's Supper every week. This unconventional, unexpected way that God accomplished our salvation is symbolized for us in the Supper. It's, it's a radical picture, right? God become flesh, body, and blood, and dying for us. And as this passage says, be assured that God works deliverance despite you. So the Lord's Supper says, be assured, I, God, have accomplished your deliverance in Christ.